This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. But I think that without a doubt, to have the court making 5-4 determinations about every single issue at the core of who Americans see themselves to be is perhaps problematic. That's Dahlia Lithwick, a journalist and lawyer. She currently serves as a senior editor at Slate, where she's worked for over 20 years. In that time, she's developed a reputation as one of the nation's foremost experts on the Supreme Court. Lithwick hosts the weekly podcast, Amicus. It focuses on the law and the courts and features interviews with top thinkers in the legal world. Lithwick is well-known among the nine justices. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once described her as spicy. Today, Lithwick joins me to talk about the issue of legal literacy in the United States and the influence of politics on the Supreme Court. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Lisa B.A., who asks, Do you think government officials listen to podcasts such as yours, the Midas Brothers, or Gaslit Nation, to name but a few, would be sort of tuning out the Greek chorus if they don't? Thoughts? Well, I can't speak for other podcasts because that's uh, it's not my business, and I don't know. But I do know that there are a lot of government officials who listen to Stay Tuned with Preet. I know that because some of those people come on the show. And have come on the show because they like the podcast and they think it's a good forum for them to talk about ideas at some length. And I also hear from folks. There are a lot of people from my old office, Southern District of New York, who are loyal listeners. At least they tell me that to my face when I see them at public functions, when there used to be public functions. There are a number of folks at DOJ who I know listen. Every once in a while, there is a government official who has heard the show and doesn't like what I've said. There's one instance in particular, I won't share the details, but I was very critical of what someone on behalf of the government was arguing in federal court. And I got a very angry missive from that person. So most of the time people enjoy listening to the show if they're in government. Every once in a while they don't because we try to speak the truth here. And by the way, I also know that a lot of government officials listen to the Cafe Insider with me and Ann Milgram. And you didn't ask this in your question, but a lot of journalists listen. And I think from time to time it helps them with their reporting to hear what Ann and I have to say about legal events. This question comes in a tweet from Kathy who asks, do you have concerns about the Derek Chauvin trial being televised? What are the pros versus cons? So that's a great age-old question. By way of background, when I worked in the Senate, every session of Congress, and I don't know if this is still the case, I bet it is, my then boss, Senator Schumer, would offer a bill, which was usually co-sponsored by both Chuck Grassley and the late Arlen Specter and a number of other senators, to permit cameras in federal courts. And it was interesting because this was always a wild debate 
And on the one hand, there are people like Senator Schumer and Arlen Specter and others who thought very strongly that in the same way that C-SPAN televises congressional proceedings and other public functions are available for public view, federal courts and federal trials should be available to everyone. Technically, federal trials are open to the public, but the problem is if there's a trial going on in the Southern District of New York and you live in California, you can't avail yourself of the openness of that trial. And for those senators, both Democrats and Republicans, the idea that people didn't have access to the courts was a problem. And there were various bills, some of which said that cameras should be allowed in all courts, including the trial courts, the appellate courts, and the Supreme Court. And then there were some bills that authorized cameras just in the Supreme Court, which was a little bit less controversial because you don't have witnesses and and lay people testifying. Then on the other side of the coin, you had people like, I believe at the time, Senator Feinstein, although she may have changed her view, who felt that cameras in the courtroom were intrusive and it would alter the behavior and conduct and demeanor, not just of the lawyers, but also the witnesses. And it would cause, perhaps in certain circumstances, a circus-like atmosphere. And people would play to the cameras and play to the public instead of doing their jobs in a courtroom. I am generally of the view that unquestionably in the Supreme Court, I think cameras should be allowed, and in the appellate courts, because you're dealing with professionals, no lay witnesses at all. And I don't think you have to worry too much that people are going to alter their behavior, because when they're arguing cases with the stakes as high as they are in those courts, they're really focused on the arguments. Is there going to be an occasional person who will play to the camera? Sure. But I think that's not a big price to pay for openness, transparency, the civic education that would be had if people could watch court proceedings on a regular basis. I think it's a little bit more of an open question in the trial court, but I think on balance, generally speaking, and with respect to the Derek Chauvin trial, cameras are good. My experience has been talking to people about this, and I've never participated in or supervised a trial in which there were cameras, so I don't have personal experience with it. But generally speaking, once the proceedings begin, people forget about the cameras, and they do their job, and they examine witnesses, and the witnesses themselves answer the questions or try to evade answering the questions. In the case of the Derek Chauvin trial, it's just so important that the American public see how justice is done, know that justice is being done. I mean, the the common phrase that I like to quote is, justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. Now, that doesn't quite mean cameras in the courtroom, but I think that's an aspect of it. I think we're getting a, a very important education about how justice works in a case like that. And that's important. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Gizboo. Hey, Gizboo. What's your favorite movie with a legal or courtroom setting? For me, it's a close call between 12 Angry Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, and The Verdict. Well, Gizboo, those are certainly very good choices. Great movies. You know, for a long time, I would say that my favorite legal drama, we'll put aside movie for a second, my favorite legal drama and one that accelerated my thinking about becoming a lawyer was Inherit the Wind, the play Inherit the Wind. It was based on the Scopes trials in the South about a teacher trying to educate students about evolution, which was very controversial at the time. And there was a Clarence Darrow character and a William Jennings Bryan character. And I was just blown away by the play. And then there was a movie that I saw eventually on VCR, for those of you who remember what VCR is, starring Spencer Tracy. And I loved that for a very, very long time. And I would have said that was my favorite legal courtroom setting movie of all time. But the production quality is not the best. Don't write. And it's a little bit old. And I think over time, my my new favorite courtroom setting movie is A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. And in the last year or two, I got a chance to watch it with one of my sons and to see the look of enjoyment 
and fascination on his face watching it and seeing perhaps the light bulb of a future legal career going off over his head, I put my money on a few good men. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is Dahlia Lithwick. She's a journalist at Slate, where she's been writing for over two decades, and has become one of the leading experts on the Supreme Court. Lithwick joins me today to talk about America's obsession with rights and President Biden's attempt to diversify the federal bench. Talia Lithwick, welcome to the show. Great. I'm so excited to be here. World it's kind of weird. Like, so I've been, I've been doing this like 26 years. You've been doing your thing for 46 years. How is it that you haven't been here yet? Um, That's my I, fault. No, no. I just think we we do slightly adjacent complementary things. It's good. Well, I've been waiting for this for a long time. So I want to go through this very quick exercise. The name of your podcast is? Amicus. Why is it not Amicus? Okay, so this is... <laughs> you've, you've already... This is why you're not on my podcast. Showed Pete. a note of <laughs> exasperation with me. This is why we won't have you on. And this is 10 seconds in. It's a new record. No, this is not for me. This is for this is for the general because I see, I hear people say amicus all the time. It, well, so I'm going to just tell you what I tell people, which is not only <laughs> since I am a people, <laughs> which is not only that it should have been called amicus, and I certainly knew that 
from clerking and should have done that. But then Justice Breyer actually calls this a micus. A micus? And I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming his Latin scholarship is better than yours and mine. So maybe we're all wrong. Wait, so this is this is an incoherent answer. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the other reason I've never been on your show. So your podcast is called Amicus. Amicus, it is. But the actual, what we refer to when we don't want to use the Latin, the friend of the court brief that people often file in courts around the country, federal and state, you're not expressing a view as to what those things are called. No, I am expressing a, a resounding view that we are wrong, and it is Amicus. No, now I'm doing Justice Breyer. Oh, amicus, Jesus. Amicus. It's amicus. And also that in trying to resolve that, we found out that Justice Breyer says amicus, and then it was potato, potato, and nothing mattered anymore. Here's the question that I that I want to ask you. I, you know, we, you and I are, do parallel things. I think you use the word adjacent. But part of what we do is in the same vein, right? And that is to explain the law to people, show people what the law is supposed to be, when there are transgressions of it, when there are deviations from what the norm should be in the law, and unpack it a little bit, uh, you know, both for lawyers and for lay people, particularly over the last number of years. You are especially adept at explaining things that come out of the Supreme Court. I do less of that and more criminal law stuff. But there's an age-old question that dates back 100-something years, maybe longer. Uh, so let, let, me ask, let me ask you this broad question, and I wonder how you will answer it. Dahlia Lithwick, is the law an ass? <laughs> that comes obviously from Charles Dickens. It does. Confirmed today by my crack team from Oliver Twist, where he called the law an ass. Is it? No. It's uh, not? I, I think the law is not an ass, but I do think... And this is going to offend the part of you that really <laughs> thinks about the part that I haven't already offended by uh, I'm not offended. suggesting that your Latin is less than impressive. But I, I think that <laughs> a little bit of a, the problem that we have had in media in talking about the law, and I think this goes back centuries and probably sweeps in Dickens, is that we think that all law or all law that is fit for popular discussion is big crime. And I remember in the beginning of the internet that you and I both remember, if you clicked on the law tab on any big mainstream site, you would get a list of big criminal trials. And I think in a weird way, that's a lot of bread and circus and a lot of ways that the public, you know, that was watching court TV or thought O.J. Simpson was the totality of how we organize ourselves under a legal regime. I just think it kind of distorted the picture, if that's fair. And so I think a lot of what the the backfilling that has happened that's been really great, I think, in the media has been to slightly redirect the conversation from what is the big kidnapping slash rape slash murder trial that we're all watching? Yes, but also what is this entire huge regulatory, uh, you know, administrative, massive constitutional machine that affects every part of our life that people don't pay attention to? Does that make sense, what I just said? It does, and I think there's a distorting effect when you sweep into the term law, everything that has to do with the law. I'm reminded in a completely different context of the fact that, you know, my parents 
expected me, and I've heard this from other people as well, after I took the bar exam and became a litigator, not necessarily specialized, but of course later became a prosecutor and, and specialized in criminal law, that they nevertheless expected, because I'd earned a law degree, that I should also be able to help with their real estate contracts. Right. Parking tickets. Or <laughs> parking tickets, property transactions. All the um, divorces. Rental. Every divorce. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, friends of theirs who had marital issues, you know, can you can you just do that? <laughs> like, I don't know what that means. You know, IP, trademark. And, you know, people wouldn't think that in the same way about having their cardiologist look at their feet, right? You know, if you busted your ankle, like people understand specialization a little more in other professions than they necessarily do with respect to the law. But but going back to my question about the law being, in, in, why did that phrase become popular and why do people repeat it? Is it just because of this thing you mentioned that there's a distortion when people talk about criminal law? Yeah. Uh, or or is, the, is the law otherwise, I mean, I guess in part, are you saying, are you in defense of the law, whatever that word means and whatever is swept into that term, that when it comes to property rights and it comes to contractual rights and it comes to standing and all sorts of other things, that are difficult for lay people to understand that the law makes sense generally? I don't know if I would say it makes sense. I would say it's better than the next best alternative, which is Anarchy? chaos, yes, right? right. Okay. And so it's that that's always just like that was Justice Scalia's answer. That was the, you know, he used to tell the famous bear story about all I have to do is outrun. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Like, I think that was always Justice Scalia's answer was like, doesn't have to be the best law in the world. It just has to be better than, you know, the crazy thing that is the alternative. And I think that even though... Uh, people are grumpy and dissatisfied and frustrated and confused. And by the way, that all of it is aided and abetted by, right, the legal industrial complex that wants it to be obfuscated and technical and confusing because that makes lawyers indispensable. But I think despite all that, if we can agree that, you know, if the next best alternative is just setting each other on fire, um, then I think the law is pretty good. Do you disagree? I don't disagree. And, you know, if you've been practicing law for a while, and maybe, I don't know if this is too um, inside baseball for, for non-lawyers, but when I was a young lawyer and I used to do some research on the law, being unfamiliar with the area, unfamiliar with the issue, um, I remember being given the assignment by a senior associate or by a partner, you know, who at the time they felt very old to me and very experienced, but I was always puzzled by the following. They would say to me things like, you know, I don't know what the law is. I haven't looked at the law, but it should be something like this. <laughs> I'm like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about, you doddering old man? And I hoped to myself that I wouldn't become that person who would blissfully ignorant of actually having read, you know, of the law and not having read the cases at all, that I would just sort of opine on what the law must be. And then I became that guy. So I guess, I guess that's one way of suggesting that the law isn't an ass, that, that if you can, after having some experience with how legal principles work and what the sort of general system of jurisprudence we have in this country works and how, you know, trials work, that unless something is highly, highly technical and out of your generalized expertise, that you can kind of have a general prediction, I'm saying general a lot, a general prediction of what the law should be, because the law is supposed to be uh, something that enforces just results and gives people equal opportunity at just results. Is that all fair? I think it's all fair. And I also think it's slightly confounded, Preet, by the ways 
that legal education, right, and this is a whole separate conversation, but this sort of what's called the Langdellian system, you know, the ways that we have been teaching law in American law schools for a really long time um, doesn't necessarily teach law, right? That's why people say, I don't know anything about X. You know, I just like took one contracts class and I did it at knife point. You know, I took one class on civil procedure. And so I think in a weird way, law school makes the thing that you're describing both possible and impossible because you don't actually learn substantive law in law school. I guess you learn that in practice and maybe when you study for the bar, but it is a very weird thing for doctors to imagine learning to, quote-unquote, think like a doctor at med school, right? The way we say that law school taught us to think like a lawyer. But there is a similarity in what is not taught, I think, with respect to law schools and medical schools. They don't teach you, or maybe they don't know how, they don't teach you a lot about people and about tending to, in the, in the doctor example, tending to, at least I'm not aware of this, tending to patients, uh, and maybe there's more of this in recent years, so I may be completely speaking out of school, but my father's a doctor and my understanding was years ago, you learn about the body and you specialize and you understand about tissue and veins and the heart or the brain or whatever the case may, and drugs and whatever else, but not a lot of time spent, you know, teaching people how to deal with patients as human beings. And, you know, lots of people have written about this. And similarly, especially in the area of, of criminal prosecution, you know, my book is, is in part based on this premise and the class I teach at NYU Law School, we talk about this all the time. Nowhere in law school do you learn how, unless you do a clinic, but nowhere in proper law school classes that you take, do you learn anything about how to coax a reluctant witness to take the stand or convince someone who's scared not to be scared or, uh, you know, make a proper sort of, you know, pitch to a client or explain to a client the likelihood that they may lose and what the balance is between freaking them out and holding their hand. I mean, all those sorts of things, if you don't do them well, you'll be an utter disaster in the practice of law. And I imagine a disaster in the practice of medicine too. So is that a larger failing in all of our trade schools? I think it is one of the big critiques of the way the professionalization of these careers happened uh, the way, you know, don't forget, both doctors and lawyers used to be trained, right, not through formal law school or med school, but through apprenticeships, right, where you right. were actually apprenticed to someone. You did the thing all day uh, for years and years until someone determined you were good at it. So I think immediately when there was this hegemonic control of legal education and then these very wacky century-old ideas about how we're going to train people to think and we're going to do it by Socratic method and hopefully we we can shame them into a puddle of tears, you know, in the first week of their 1L <laughs> year. And then it's just going to be like, you know, the paper chase until we all, I don't know what all. But I think that there was just a lot of wrongheaded ideas about legal teaching that assumed a whole bunch of things that are no longer in evidence. And one of them is the thing you first said, which is, you know, that, that lawyers can be narrower and narrower rather than broader and broader in their specialties, right? When I clerked for Proctor Hug on the Ninth Circuit, he was one of those old-school country lawyers who really did do a divorce this week and a custody battle last week and next week, you know, a criminal defense and the week after that, some huge property dispute. So that isn't that far gone in the past. It's not unimaginable. But I think also we just constructed a world in which people— 
by virtue of the way we think about legal pedagogy, graduate from law school not knowing things, and then they have to go to big law firms to be taught how to do things. And that's in everyone's interest except, as you say, the client who's paying a lot of money. So I think that if we were to re-envision this, and there's been lots of experiments in how to re-envision this, and I think you're right that the clinical programs are trying to cut at that too. But I think treating this as a profession that has to be highly credentialed and highly uh, rigorous in teaching you to think a certain way, but you come out and you don't actually know how to solve problems or talk to a client or, you know, do anything but bill in 20-minute increments. Those things are very, very I think good. it's six minutes. Sorry. It, see, this it's is, now, this is, I think it's now, maybe it's gone down. I'm waiting until it goes down to a sub-minute. To, to four-second increments? Well, it's like for a long time, no <laughs> human could beat the four-minute mile. And, and, right. and I guess maybe no lawyer has beaten the six-minute increment. You know, I had the the editor-in-chief of The Economist on the show once and asked her a question about economic literacy and how much she thought that was a problem where average Americans or average Europeans or citizens anywhere in the world, when they're asked to vote on in elections, you know, the economy is very important. And to what extent they were not able to vote their best interests because there is low economic literacy. Do people understand what happens when you raise interest rates? Do people understand what debt really means? You know, all of that stuff that I think a lot of people don't. So the, the parallel question I have for you, and I wonder how much it matters, is, is what do you think is the level of sort of legal literacy in this country? And, and one reason I ask is I think you've been doing this for a long time, but there's been a proliferation of other people, myself included, over the last few years, whose job in part is to break down the law. And lawyers take for granted that people understand certain things. And I'll never forget, I've, I've gotten questions in the past from listeners who are educated and thoughtful and have careers one question was, and I never forget it, it was, look, I'm a smart guy. I've, uh, I've lived in America my whole life. I'm a professional. I think this person was a medical doctor. And he said, you throw around the words grand jury and grand jury secrecy and all that. I don't know what a grand jury is. What is a grand jury? Could you just explain that? And I guess my question is, what do you think is the level of legal literacy? And is it important for people to understand certain basic concepts, no matter what profession they're in, to be good citizens and to make good decisions about their communities? That's such a great question. And I, I think what I'm really struck by is when I read my early journalism and how painstakingly I would explain that stuff, right? A grand jury is. <laughs> this is the presumption of. And I really was at huge pains to explain everything because I think I more intuitively then understood what your doctor listener was saying, which is we, right, we went to law school. This is the water we swim in. We understand uh, uh, how a grand jury operates. And and people don't. And I used to explain everything. And then I just stopped because I felt like I was doing that over and over and over again. This is the n number of federal district courts. This is the number of federal circuit courts. The federal, you know, I was noticing even just writing on the the Biden tranche of judges, the Chicago-based Seventh Circuit. And I was like, why do we always say Chicago-based as though that tells us freaking anything, right? The Richmond-based Fourth Circuit. Like these conventions that don't tell you anything but are shorthand for explaining the sort of regional distribution of federal circuit courts. And so I think, and it's not, I guess I, I'm balking a little at the literacy framing, Preet, only because... I don't want to suggest that people are illiterate because, as you say, I think very well-educated people just don't know very, very basic things about how the law and the courts and legal process works. And we should explain it, and we don't. 
let me ask you a different. So, so that's one category of thing. You know, the mechanics, what's the difference between a U.S. attorney and a district attorney and an attorney general of a state? I mean, I've been called every title incorrectly and I don't begrudge people that because it's, it's hard to understand. Even, even real estate lawyers, you know, people who've gone to law school, they're like, what were you again? And so that's one category, like how grand juries work, how subpoena works, what, what those things mean. Do you have to get a search warrant for cell phone data? You know, I, I, I get that. But then there are other things about which maybe literacy is not the right word. Take, for, take the First Amendment, for example. We have all these debates online, and maybe there are a lot online, and that's why they're so stupid. But what, what is the ba- do you think we Do you think people have a basic understanding of what the First Amendment permits and prohibits, and that people are just engaged in you know, bad faith argumentation about people getting kicked off of Twitter or, or things like that? Or, or do people really not understand the First Amendment and what it means with respect to state action? Oh, I absolutely think people don't understand the First Amendment. And every okay, so day, that's more of a problem than, you know, not understanding what a grand jury is, right? Right. No, and I think that the First Amendment is the paradigmatic case of not only do people not understand it, but then they just keep saying dumb stuff like, you know, <laughs> right. Josh Hawley thinking he has a First Amendment right to have his book published or, you know, that you have a First Amendment right to, you know, be whatever, an actor in Hollywood. So I think that not only is it a distortion of what the First Amendment is, but then it's a distortion of, you know, you start talking, making claims about your rights that are completely bonkers and everyone believes them. So I think that's probably the best example of what people don't understand. But even, right, the conversation- yeah, but, but Josh Hawley understand. So oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a distinction between people who don't understand, which is what I was trying to get at. They really understand, but they un- but they also understand that- there's something, you know, talismanic and special about the invocation of First Amendment. It's my First Amendment right. And do you distinguish between those two groups? I think that Americans are very rightsy, right? I think that— Is that, a, is that, a, is that, is that Latin? I think it's in uh, Jamal Green's new book, uh, which is very interesting about— Is that rightsy with, just with a Y at the end of rights, or is, is there a dash? Y? I believe that there is an E-Y in there, but I remember— oh, E-Y. In reading the book, I did not realize how language-based this interview is going to be. It's quite yeah. stressful. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Americans are very rightsy, and I think that there is this— reflexive need to construct everything in terms of, right? Think about the last year and fighting about, I have a right not to wear a mask. Like, really? What penumbra is that in? (laughs) And I think it's just that is both the the good and bad thing about the way Americans see the world is is just this cascading set of rights that allow you to do whatever you want to do. And I guess your question is deeper than that, which is, what do you do with the the bad faith spin-offs of that and how how much there is but i think legal literacy isn't just for me a question of not knowing you know what's in the bill of rights or what is and is not admissible you know in a trial but also just i think there's a lack of historic legal literacy, if that makes sense, and a, a, a failure to understand what Jim Crow really was, what Reconstruction really was, a failure to really see the way the Senate is currently constituted as fundamentally anti-democratic. And so I guess I just think 
it's it's all of that gets bound up in this rightsy conversation about the right to vote and the right to speak. And I think that if you can't layer that over what that has meant historically, that's also a, just a really perilous place we're in. So that I know that was not responsive, but I guess I just want to broaden. Objection, de- <laughs> non-responsive. I, still I just to, think I it's a broad problem. That's, it, it that's, reminds me of something. Maybe this is not apropos, but I just it popped in my head this concept of rights and how Americans are very rightsy, and I think that's true. I also think it's an odd concept for people. I'll never forget. I was undergraduate in college, and you know, I was a government major, and I studied political theory and political philosophy. So to me, all these concepts seemed, you know, readily understandable because I studied them in the lofty academic sense. And I had this brilliant roommate who was a biochem major and was on his way to becoming a doctor. And, you know, back then there was a core curriculum and just like I was required to take, you know, science classes outside of my major, he was required to take humanities courses and he's a super smart guy. And we sit down at dinner and he said, you know, I was, I was in this class today, I guess, you know, introductory political philosophy class. And he said, you know, rights, these things we call rights, like that's not a real thing. Like, (laughs) There's, like there's no such thing as right. And it really struck me. I never forgot it because this person who is incredibly smart and, you know, who could do things that I could never dream of doing in math and science and was studying biochemistry at a high level, he was having a hard time understanding just the notion of this, this phantom thing that we call rights. Do you have any reaction to that? I feel like you just put a big fat bow on top of your laws and ass offering, because I think (laughs) I I used to give a little talk called Welcome to My Breakdown, and it started after Merrick Garland was uh, snubbed for for, uh, having even courtesy meetings, much less a, a hearing and a vote for the SCOTUS seat that was held open for almost a year. And I kept having people, audiences, I'm sure audiences asked you the same question, but like there has to be a a, a law, right? There needs to be a legal mechanism to force Merrick Garland to give him a hearing and a vote. And then, and I know you and I have talked about this in the years since then, but the extent to which Americans believe that the law is some kind of self-effectuating machinery that you like push a button and law comes out and then that, <laughs> you know, you insert it into the slot and legalness happens. And all the ways in which, not jokingly, the last four years were a real lesson in, you know, if Don McGahn just doesn't feel like showing up to testify, he just doesn't. Uh, if uh, time after time after time, you know, some acting uh, person is a- it should not actually be serving and he's still serving and you're like, but, 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 right? This was the Walt Schaub, like, you know, shaking fist at Sky. We have ethics rules. We have all these norms. And I think... In a strange way, it's not that law is an ass, but I think law is so much more flimsy and fallible. In and flimsy, the law is a, the law is a spleen. The, yeah, or the law <laughs> is just like a flimsy lace curtain. You know, it's just not the thing that people expected. And so, in a weird way, my reckoning of the last couple of years, or welcome to my breakdown, is I thought. The opposite, I guess, or or maybe, you know, the same as, as your roommate, which is that it was a much more robust system that 
didn't require smashing your head against a wall over and over again and saying, but that's illegal and nothing changing. So I, I think in a weird way, that's what the law is. The law is like a, a tutu. <laughs> that, the um, law is a what? It's a, like a ballerina's tutu. Like it's, it's a bunch of ephemera that we thought was really uh, much stronger than it was. So, ha. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the ephemera. Uh, that gets interpreted by that group of nine called the Supreme Court. I'm going to ask you a question that is probably annoying and you've been asked a lot, but I get asked it and you're smarter about this stuff than I am. Is the Supreme Court overly politicized? Yes. How so? I think it's two things. I think that for good and for bad, it has inserted itself into the central questions of uh, how Americans live their lives in ways that is not, I think, what the framers contemplated. So the we should mid- butt out more. Well, I, no, I mean, look, butting in was really good, right? Butting in gives us brown. Butting in gives us roe. Like, butting in when it's to help discrete and insular minorities who don't have a voice in the political system, I think we might think is a good thing. But I think that without a doubt, to have the court making 5-4 determinations about every single issue at the core of who Americans see themselves to be is perhaps problematic. And I think that And this, I I think, is uh, uncontroversial, what I'm going to say. But the ways in which we have turned the court into a political football is not good for the court. Do you think part of it is the confirmation process? For sure, part of it is the confirmation process. For sure, part of it is the transition from three-hour on-paper confirmations to week-long C-SPAN gavel-to-gavel gotcha confirmation. I mean, some of that stuff is for sure a problem. And I've said for a long time, and I do think it's true, that if you're going to televise the job interview and then not televise the actual job performance for 20 years, you are going to unerringly capture every justice at their worst, right? So like, we're doing this wrong. We should, if we're going to put something on cameras for people to watch at home, it shouldn't be the job interview. It's interesting this view that the Supreme Court has become more politicized. Maybe this is a naive point. But once upon a time, it used to be that you need not have been an academic or a sitting appellate court judge to become a Supreme Court justice. There have been examples of people who have been political leaders. Sandra Day O'Connor had some background in politics, in state government, in her home state. Uh, And and so you, you have a narrower experiential sort of source from which justices get chosen but that has, has nonetheless not halted the march towards politicization. Is there anything to be made of that? I think the politicization has caused that in some sense because, and, and this, Justice Scalia would say this, Justice Ginsburg would say this all the time, someone like me couldn't get confirmed anymore, right? I mean, there's no way a Thurgood Marshall could get confirmed anymore. There's no way... When I say nobody like me, I don't mean that Scalia or Ginsburg thought someone like Dahlia. I think they just said nobody like themselves uh, could get confirmed anymore. Well, I'd like to see you on the court. But um, uh, I I love the fact that I'm too old. Like, you have to be 22. But I do think that um, (laughs) 
there is a way in which, and, and this is a huge problem, I think, for both sides, that if you have ever written or said anything controversial, if you have done, you know, deeply probing academic work in something that is provocative or uncertain, you know, all of those things are now disqualifying. And I think this is, I wrote this piece a few years ago and it led Justice Alito to call me some hack. Uh, oh yeah, I was going to ask you about I that. I tattooed on my butt. But, um, you know, I think that- He didn't that, even tweet that, did he? No, no. That, that's kind of the thing you reserve for Twitter. Yeah, no, he called me some hack. But I think that the, the fact of the matter is, if you look at some of the really great, interesting justices of all time, like you said, they didn't come off, you know, one of two paths, either through, you know, the Justice Department or uh, academia, which is the only thing we have anymore. They came from all sorts of crazy places like Earl Warren. Uh, and I think that the knock on that, whether it's right or wrong, is this question about, quote, unquote, real life experience, right? That Sandra Day O'Connor, because she knew how the Arizona state legislature worked, could be pretty smart about campaign finance, whereas now you have these people who've never run for office who are like, I don't believe it's a problem unless Scrooge McDuck drops a money bag on the, you know, and that's like, that's just I not. I didn't know you were going to do a voice. I know. And that was a weird voice to do Scrooge McDuck. I'm not no, sure like, what happened like there. It was like Downton Abbey. <laughs> Downton Abbey. Among the Supreme Court decisions that I don't agree with are the, are the ones that have been narrowing the scope of public corruption prosecutions where these, you know, including the one with the former Virginia governor. Yes, sir. Where they don't seem to understand in the real world how politics works, how bribery works, how influence works, how a quid pro quo works. And I think that's a problem. It's a huge problem. And it's funny because you get these opinions that are so disaggregated from how actual politics is practiced. And as you say, how actual criminal law is practiced. And that I don't think means that uh, the justices are bad. It just means that if you don't have really diverse, complicated professional experience, um, there's no way you can know those things. And I, you know, I will say just because Biden put up this tranche of 11 uh, nominees, his first uh, for the federal courts, one of the things he did, actually, I was going to ask you about this if I can, I know it's your show, is that they've sidelined the ABA. And so the American Bar Association doesn't get to do this pre-vetting. And one of the reasons is we don't want any more stinking corporate lawyers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. So we're recording this <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's even in my outline. We're recording this on March 30th, Tuesday. And so just a few hours ago, right? Yep. Um, and the Biden administration with great pride announced, and the reason they have great pride is not necessarily, it's, it's two things. One is the diversity of the people who they are nominating to various courts around the country, but also that they're ahead of where Trump, Obama, and others have been at this point. You know, there was a lot of criticism of Obama that his judicial process was slow. And, and part of that, my recollection is, uh, there was a Supreme Court vacancy right away, and Sonia Sotomayor was the focus. And it was a little bit hard to get district court and circuit court nominees, you know, vetted and through. So they're really excited about this. A little bit inside baseball, but this, there's been this football, this political football with respect to the ABA. And Republican presidents in recent years have not gone through the ABA process. And the ABA has their right, you know, to vet and to opine on judicial nominees after the appointment is made. But there was, as you point out, just to give the background for folks, there was a tradition by which particularly Democratic presidents would vet potential nominees before they were nominated through the ABA and they would give a rating, you know, qualified, not qualified, 
and also, you know, by what majority of the, of the panel, you know, unanimously qualified or not qualified, et cetera. So I don't know what to make of it. What do you make of it? <laughs> so I turn the question back to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the decision was taken that a lot of Obama nominees, particularly uh, women and minorities, were getting ranked as unqualified, and that that suggested that the ABA uh, was not looking at the right criteria. And it's for sure the case that having that ABA pre-vetting uh, added a month to the process. And I think that because Biden, as you said, has learned the lessons and Ron Klain, uh, his chief of staff, has learned the lessons of the Obama failure to get the judge machine up and running on day one, they were just not going to have a month lag time. And I think the last thing is this professional qualifications question that you kind of led with, which is there were too many, or at least the progressive groups like Demand Justice are saying, there were too many former prosecutors and big law people who got through the ABA vetting system. And you're never going to see another civil rights attorney. You're never going to see another public defender. And they just felt as though if the engine you have that is pushing judges forward can't see uh, people of color or can't see public defenders, then let's sideline the engine. Uh, needless to say, the ABA is very bummed out. Um, but I think that there's a... Well, do they bring it upon themselves? Well, I think it's just an interesting problem. I think that I had always heard the critique that came from the George W. Bush administration and then from the Trump administration that the ABA was a bunch of liberal hacks, right? That there was no way that they could be trusted to vet judges because they were too liberal. So it's an amazing thing to see progressive groups now saying, oh my God, they're way too conservative. And it, it, in some sense, it's so on the nose, right, about where we are in this moment that the institution hasn't changed. It's just that it's too far left for one side and too far right for the other. So maybe that's the cherry on top to your answer about how politicized this has become. We'll be right back to my interview with Dahlia Lithwick after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're in the second day of the trial of Derek Chauvin. And by the time people listen to this episode, you know, things may have evolved and maybe there'll be twists and turns. And we were talking before we started taping that you, like I, have been watching the trial. How important is this trial? I, I think it's singular in some sense. One always thinks that each of these trials is going to change everything, right? And you and I have been around long enough to know that each iteration of this trial that we think can change everything. And even the George Floyd protests, which in some sense we thought would change everything, in some sense changed a lot of things. Um, you see them enough times and you see that 
things don't change. Um, I do think the trial is really important in terms of having, again, a conversation about police abuse and about the abuse particularly of of men in, of color and poor men of color. But I, I worry, I wonder, I guess I wonder what you think about whether these trials are the vehicle for changing anything or if it's just a kind of ritual, you know, we all have to to sort of lance the wound and, and suffer and everybody is heartbroken, but this isn't where change is going to come from. Look, you know, you made the point earlier in the interview about the law being a tutu, I think you said. And I have often said that even if you have enforcement of laws, I mean, I think at a minimum, if there is a, a full-scale acquittal in this case, I think it'll be very damaging. And there'll be a very bad and understandable reaction given what the evidence shows so far. On the other hand, it is not a panacea to have a conviction of an officer who, from what I see, is clearly guilty of various forms of murder. Uh, and that doesn't change laws. That's just a particular prosecution that takes place. And you also worry that even though there are lots of things still that need to be done with respect to criminal justice reform, you know, some people would say, look, the law worked. Derek Chauvin was held accountable. And will they argue that that should slow down the pace of other criminal justice reform because of this you know, quote unquote victory that might come in the future. So I think it's hard to know. So just, you know, it's only been a, a day and a half, but I wonder if you have a view of, of how it's going. My initial reaction in watching the cross-examination by Chauvin's defense lawyer is he looks to me just by, by observation, I don't know him from before, I'm not familiar with him otherwise, is that he clearly has the ability to conduct an effective cross-examination, but hasn't done so yet. You know, his, his manner and demeanor and the precision with which he asks questions, he, he's got some craft, but he's asking the wrong questions. He's asking too many of them. And I think some of the things he's doing are backfiring on the defense team. What, what's your reaction? I was very struck by two things. One is the extent to which already we've heard just in the two short days what it means when people who are bystanders, who are filming, are calling the police on the police. I think that's an amazing encapsulation of the problem, right? Um, the other thing that I've really been struck by is how the defense has taken this posture that is, don't pay attention to this almost 10 minutes of video that fairly clearly shows the thing that you all see it to show um, because you don't understand the stuff that wasn't in the video, right? You don't know what was behind uh, the police officers. You don't. You can't tell what the crowd all around them was doing and what they were experiencing. And I guess I, I'm so mindful again, going back to Rodney King, of the ways in which having video has become the solution in some sense. It's also catapulted us into this new problem where you get this very. Trumpy defense, which is pay no attention to what your lying eyes are telling you about this video because you don't know the whole story. And, and it's such a paradox. I mean, I don't have a, a, a theory of the case, but if you look at the video, which is what, you know, the prosecutors are saying, that's all you have to do. It's all in there. Um, there's one story. There's an amazing 
valence to this trial that is, no, the full story is the intensity of what those officers were experiencing, which is not captured on video. Like, if you could see the video of what was around the video, you would be persuaded. And I just find that to be kind of a singularly of this moment metaphor and very Trumpy in some way. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, You know, I've made the point that sometimes defense lawyers make bad arguments because there's no good argument. Uh, and when you weigh when you weigh the quality of an argument, it's not in a vacuum. It's against whatever other arguments they might be able to make. And sometimes the best thing to do is is simply to argue not sufficient evidence on the part of the government, right? Just argue the, not try to create a, an alternative narrative through suggesting unrealistically that the crowd was needed need to be held at bay and was threatening Derek Chauvin. That's why he had to keep his knee on the back of George Floyd even as he stopped breathing and, and and stopped having a pulse, sometimes it's better just to suggest, you know, to concede some things and not argue that everything that the person did was perfect, but argue, you know, you may you may have, and I don't see this argument yet, and maybe I missed it, where, where the argument, and this is parallel to what maybe the president should have argued, his lawyer should have argued at the impeachment trial, the second one, look, the conduct of my client, whether it's Trump or Chauvin, it was not perfect. It was not ideal. We regret it. It was a terrible thing that happened here, but it doesn't rise to the level of criminal conduct. And sometimes people will give you that benefit. And I think what's trumping about certain kinds of legal arguments is that no concession, no concession, no concession. Everything I did was wonderful and great. And if, if you can't balance reality and concession with you know, what your arguments are that are good for your client, then I think you're in trouble. And maybe that's impossible to do sometimes, but they're certainly not doing it here so far. Yeah, yeah, and you can really see the attacks on like the MMA fighter, you know, that that he was whipping up the crowd and he was full of anger. I mean, that again feels very That Trumpy, backfired. Right? I thought that backfired hugely. Hugely. They were trying to make the argument that the MMA fighter, who I thought was a, a terrific witness and underestimated witness, that he was whipping up the crowd and and causing the officers, Chauvin in particular, to be concerned, whereas I think his line was something like, I, yeah, I, th- I thought that I was witnessed, I thought I witnessed a murder. Yep. And I called 911 on the cops. And he was asked the question, right? Well, well there, weren't there cops there? Why didn't you? Go? Well, no, that speaks volumes. And I think they spent too much time on him, the defense did, to no avail. Yep. Who's the funniest Supreme Court justice? And does humor in a Supreme Court justice or any judge matter for their outlook on the law or tell you anything about their outlook on the law? Uh, you know, there's, there are studies done every year of how many laughs uh, I know. appear and it used on to the always transcripts. Be Scalia, right? It was always Scalia, and Kagan uh, was very upset because she is very funny <laughs> and didn't get. She as, is very funny. Did, did not get as many laughs in the transcript. Uh, I think that, uh, and John Roberts is very funny in a sort of dry Midwestern way that doesn't necessarily uh, chime with East Coast. Seinfeld sensibilities. It is very funny. I think Kagan at present is probably the funniest justice. Um, and I think funniness helps in the way that, you know, the the interesting thing at the court, to make a slightly serious point <laughs> briefly, and then we can get back to crazy, but um, is, is this interesting blob at the middle of the court now, which is sort of Breyer and Kagan and certainly the Chief Justice and more and more Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, this blob of people who are ready to make deals, and then the real ideological purists, you know, Alito and Thomas on the right and um, Sotomayor on uh, the left. And there's this very interesting 
new thing happening in just in the last few weeks where more and more Barrett is not showing up for the conservative legal movement and Kavanaugh is joining Kagan in argument after argument being like, I'm sorry, I don't really fully understand what we're doing here right now. And there's this funny new dynamic at the court of trying to appear reasonable and centrist and pragmatic. And I think humor, believe it or not, is a really good crowbar into that. Um, And so we're seeing sort of improbable laugh lines coming in some of the the arguments where um, just very, very surprisingly, Barrett and Kavanaugh and Kagan and, you know, Breyer are all doing this fun wacky new thing of let's try not to look like partisan freaks and to just so where did that come things. from you think what, what has caused that well i think a couple things i think it's a good question i think part of it is just john roberts as the new right he's the new kennedy so it started i think even before right. by uh, what you mean by what you mean kind of the swing vote he's the, clearly was the swing vote until barrett came on and then he in a strange way becomes right in a 6-3 court he in some ways becomes less relevant i think his way of being relevant is to continue to really tilt toward how do we do this narrowly? How do we do this without a lot of polemic, you know, batting away big cases, trying to find narrow, narrow holdings. So a lot of that is John Roberts' fingerprints. That's the John Roberts who decided, you know, the June medical, the big abortion case uh, with the, the liberals and who decided those early COVID cases with the liberals, trying to just stay under the radar. I think that the bigger issue is just in a strange way because Donald Trump politicized, you know, the Kavanaugh and the Barrett nomination, but also the Gorsuch nomination uh, in ways that said, you know, it's all or nothing, do or die, my court and my rules. I think that the justices have had to live with that, right? The All the times that John Roberts said, my court is going to give me my presidency, the, the real backlash was not on Donald Trump. It was on the court. And so I think they've had now to try to compensate for that acute, acute mistrust and politicization by just pulling back the throttle and not taking on big cases and not necessarily grabbing the first gun case and not necessarily doing really radical things. And I think we may see that for a year or two. But what's interesting about that is they don't need to. Life tenure, highest court. Oh, they got years. Yep. But it's interesting that they do care a lot about that. They do care a lot about legacy. In some ways, I would argue even more than, maybe this is a radical statement, which I haven't really properly thought of, but it just popped in my head, so I'm going to say it. You know, in some ways, I feel like they think about their personal legacies and reputations, not to mention the reputation of the court as a whole, more than some individual elected officials who just glommed on to Donald Trump and did an about-face on a lot of things, including their value system, their politics, their truth-telling I find that interesting. Is that is that fair or am I way off the mark? No, I, I think that's right. And I think the most interesting fracture at the U.S. Supreme Court right now is the line between Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas, who have become full-on sort of Trumpist culture warriors, right? Making claims about how, you know, government hates religious people and how Obergefell, the marriage equality case, was a deliberate attack on uh, religious folks, you know, that's just straight up 
uh, stuff that you would have heard in Trump, the way in, in from Trump, the way they talk now. And it's fascinating that his own nominees are much more inclined to peel off and say things like, uh, I'm not really sure why the Republican Party has gotten involved in this Brnovich case, you know, trying to uphold really restrictive Arizona voting regulations. Why Why does the GOP have an interest in that? That, that comes from Amy Coney Barrett. So I think that there's a strange way in which the court itself is mirroring the kind of split between the Marjorie Taylor Greens and you know, of uh, Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's, the people who still are saying the election was stolen, and the rest of the GOP that's trying to have some reverter back to some kind of principled governance. And in a weird way, it's the Trump nominees at the court who are upending, right? They're being old school Republicans. They're much more doing the old timey, you know, we have to get along and we have to be bipartisan. They're the John McCain's in this scenario that I hadn't actually thought about it, but that is kind of perverse and and interesting. You can credit me in your next piece. It's a really smart insight. So we, so we have to bring this to, you know, I don't, do you have a phrase with which you end the show? I was going to say, well, we'll have to leave it there. We're running out of time. I don't have one. Do you have one? I generally, so we we generally end my show with me and Mark Stern, who covers the courts for us. And by the end of it, we're so depressed that we're actually (laughs) drooling and crying. So I tend to sign off with things like, I need a bourbon. So that's my, probably my line. All right. So on a scale of one to 10, given this conversation, where on the bourbon scale are you? Uh, I am much less depressed than I am after my own shows. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's really nice. Dahlia Lithwick, it's been long overdue. What a treat to speak to you today. This was lovely. Thank you so much for having me. My conversation with Dahlia Lithwick continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dahlia Lithwick. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669 669- Two four Preet, or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Barara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozer Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Weiner, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan. Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.